Sinai on Angle Surgery Update Science Guide and Treatment. We have had a little break, but now we are back with a very special episode of the podcast. The German Association of Foot and Ankle Surgery, DAF, regularly hosts webinars with the aim to educate and to increase the dialogue. The DAF invited us to host the podcast within one of their webinars. This episode, we will focus on treatment options for osteochondral defects of the tennis. For this episode, we are excited to have a special guest with us, Professor Christoph Becher. He is from the International Center of Orthopedics at the Atos Clinic Heidelberg. He specializes in surgery of the knee and ankle and has authored and co-authored way over 100 PubMed-listed articles. He's very active in multiple societies around the knee and ankle. He recently has published two systematic reviews focusing on the AMIC procedure for osteochondral lesions of the talus. But we would love to start with his award-winning KSSTA publication entitled Atroscopic Microfracture versus Atroscopic Autologous Matrix-Induced Chondrogenesis for the treatment of articular cartilage defects of the tables. So, Christoph, thank you so much for being with us today. Maybe you're so kind and give us a brief summary of your study, which was selected for the KESA Best Paper Award in 2018-2019. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a big pleasure to be part of this webinar series. Yeah, thank you for the interest in my work and uh, in my opinions about treatment of osteochondral and chondral lesions of the tables. Um, as you said, I published a paper that was uh, awarded with the uh, Best Paper Award of ESCA in 2018 and 2019. First of all, I want to give a little background to the study. I was a young resident in 1998 when I started here at the Atos Clinic with Hayo Thurman, who is also a well-known foot and ankle surgeon. And at that time, we started an ankle cartilage repair database and uh, included all of our cases. And uh, as you might know, uh, we published a bunch of papers about arthroscopic microfracture for the treatment of chondral and osteochondral defects of the talus. And when I came back here as a partner in 2016, I found out that at that time, Hayo Temman was doing the AMIC procedure all arthroscopically. So he switched completely. He abandoned arthroscopic microfracture and only did the AMIC procedure. So that was a perfect opportunity to compare the outcome of these procedures because all of the patients were in the database. All of them had been treated exclusively with all arthroscopic microfracture or the all arthroscopic AMIC procedure. And his indications, his philosophies were the same about treating the patients. And um, so I, I looked at the database, uh, did a power analysis and matched the patients as good as I could and could have two groups of 16 patients included. They were matched according to defect size, age, gender, defect location, BMI, all these kind of important parameters. And of course, uh, also uh, other procedures such as ligament stabilization or osteotomies were excluded. So all of them were just treated for some kind of osteochondral defect of the talus, medial or lateral side. That was very good to compare these two groups. And all of these were basically evaluated with the same scores, the Hanover score for the ankle and the visual analog scale from the beginning to the end. And all of them had MRI preoperatively and postoperatively. So a very good base of data to compare these two groups. For the outcome, the two groups showed no statistically, statistically significant differences. The median score and the Nova score was 88 for the AMIC procedure and 82 for the all arthroscopic microfracture procedure. So there was some kind of a tendency in favor of the AMIC procedure, but statistically there was no difference. 
The same applied for the visual analog scale, some slight tendency for the AMIC uh, in favor of the AMIC, but no statistically differences uh, for the AMIC. When looking at the MRIs, there were no differences at all. So they were all looking more or less the same. So you had some kind of regenerate, better looking or worse looking, which not had an impact on the result, but which we have known before from our microfracture studies. So the outcome on MRI did not have an, an impact on the clinical result. Thank you very much for this nice sum up of your uh, paper. To start off with, you already elaborated that you tried and I think you succeeded in generating a two comparable groups. You used for to, to classify the osteochondral defects, you used the burned and hardy classification uh, and included only osteochondral lesions of less than two square centimeters. Just for our uh, listeners, Bernard Hardy classification was published in the 1950s and is primarily based on uh, planar radiographs, but it still is one of these standard classification systems used today. It classifies osteochondral lesions as stage one lesions, which have a small area of subchondral compression, a stage two lesion with a partial fragment detachment, a stage three lesion as a complete fragment detachment, but no displacement of the fragment, and a stage four lesion as a displaced fragment. I think one, one limitation of whenever we talk about osteochondral defects is this classification to a certain degree. For my understanding, it does rather classify osteochondral fractures where we actually see a fragment that then detaches. In our outpatient clinics, we predominantly see lesions which we see either isolated chondral defect or we see a chondral defect with an with underlying subchondral cysts or actually bone degeneration. Could you elaborate which type of lesions you included and maybe why you decided to use the Bernard Hardy classification and not any more modern CT, MRI or arthroscopy based classification system? Well, the, the defects included were all osteochondral. Some of them were classical osteochondrite dissecants, and some of them were osteochondral, you know, at some kind, some with cysts, some without, with different underlying causes. Uh, we know that most of these defects developed by chronic instability, acute trauma, supination traumas, or some kind of hind foot deformity that are the underlying cause of these defects. But as you said, the Bernhardt classification from two to four describes a detached fragment, more or less. And all the other classifications, whether they're CT-based, MRI-based, or arthroscopically-based, come back to an unstable fragment. And when it, this, the fragment or the lesion is unstable, means, at least in my opinion and Hyotermann's opinion, to debride the defect. And when we debride the defect, uh, we come to the, the procedure, the, the therapy that we have done. So I think the Bernhardi classification is, is fair enough to describe what kind of defect you're dealing with. Unstable osteochondral defects that had to be debrided. We don't know the underlying course. And I have to be honest, now in my daily practice, I do a lot more additional procedures, ligament stabilization or hind foot correction as Hyatterman did in the past. But in this study, as, as I've said, procedures were excluded. Actually, we don't know exactly if there was an impact or not. I don't think that the other classifications really add to the decision if we have to change a, the treatment or not. Yeah, that's uh, very true. I think uh, you made a very good point, Christoph. And I mean, it's uh, one of the most commonly used classifications among the studies looking at the osteochondral lesions. But still, I think it, any classification falls short to really describe this cystic aspect. And I think these cystic 
lesions probably are not the same compared to the purely chondral lesions. It's a different type of lesion which might uh, need a different kind of treatment. So you said you had a lot of lesions with cystic deterioration as well. Where it's now independent from, from the study, but where do you see the indication or when does the indication start to debride the lesion and to fill the lesion with autologous bone and uh, then maybe put a, a membrane over it? Yeah, you, you make a, a good point there. Actually, I'm very sure I treat the patients or the defects differently than he did in the past, which is good. So we have some involvement in our treatment. Well, I was part of the consensus meeting about treatment of osteochondral and chondral lesions of the Taylors in Pittsburgh in 2017. And we made up some papers, uh, some guidelines on how, often, on how we treat our patients. And basically, I stick to that. So, well, we agreed more or less that in defects with a diameter of greater than one square centimeter, we should add a matrix. And if the bone defect is greater than three millimeters to the depth, we should add some kind of bone graft. That's, that's more or less what I do. During surgery, I probe the defects, but when there's a cyst, then I will have unstable cartilage for sure. You put on your probe, you just you go into the lesions very easily. So if I, if I see that on images, it's clear what has to be done. So it has to be debrided. The cyst has to be debrided. All the, the bad bone has to be gone, taken away, and then filled up with bone graft if necessary and covered with uh, some kind of matrix. So basically the indication is, is that death, if the death is more than three millimeters, you say you need to fill it up. Is that, did I get that right? But that's, that's how I stick to more or less, yes. Yes. Hans and me often have discussions on, on when we do the ANIC, whether we should do it purely atheroscopically or whether we should do it minimally uh, invasive openly. You stated in your paper that you do it, you do, you do them all atheroscopically and you do see some limitations when you put on the amic membrane that does not always perfectly fit. For us, that is the argument to do just a mini atherotomy to actually just have the right and perfect fit for the membrane in the in the defect. Have you changed your uh, your procedure regarding the atheroscopic or do you still stick with the atheroscopic procedure? And do you have any hints maybe for our uh, listeners and viewers on how you get a better fit of the membrane when you do it all atheroscopically? Well, the most important point is to treat the defect in the right way. So whether it's open, arthroscopically, whether you do a medial osteotomy, whatever you do, it has to be debrided in the correct way and somehow filled up and covered in the correct way. If someone can do that all arthroscopically, fair enough. Most of the times I open up to many open procedure as, as, as probably you do in your, in your daily practice to really be sure to put in if you need a bone graft to put in the bone in the right way and not half of the bone is somewhere lying into it, in the joint in the back or somewhere and to be able to cover the defect in the right way that really sticks there when I start moving the ankle. And I always check that after the procedure to move the ankle back and forward and make sure that the matrix and the bone stays where it is and not goes somewhere around. So that really doesn't matter. You just have to do it the right way. That's, I think, the answer on that. Yeah, I think uh, that's totally right. I mean, in the end, it has to be done right. If you are able to do it atheroscopically, that's for you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, uh, Christoph, there are are several systematic reviews showing a superiority of the AMIC procedure over the pure uh, nanofracturing or microfracturing. In in your uh, semi-randomized trial, you found no differences between those two procedures. How do you explain this? 
Well, this superiority is for the knee. Uh, so there's no, no proven superiority of an amic procedure over arthroscopic microfracture in the ankle. So if we talk about the knee, it's a different story, but the knee is a different joint with different biomechanics. I think we cannot compare the knee to the, to the ankle. For the ankle, the superiority of an amic procedure by using a matrix is not really proven because there's no studies out that are randomized uh, that have control groups. So we have to look at cohort studies and looking at the cohort studies, we have to be honest, whatever we do, we cannot prove superiority of one or another procedure. Also, we have to still think about OATS procedure. ACI is still out there in some countries. So there's no real superiority of one over the other. But I think we have to think logical. In the ankle, we are mostly dealing with osteochondral defects. Are, most instances are quite deep. The cystic origin, as, as you've already mentioned. And we have to fill it up with bone graft. And this bone graft, I think, should be covered with a matrix. So in my opinion, this is the state of the art at this point. I don't think it's oats because it's a lot more invasive. Uh, the outcome is a lot less predictable than uh, when using a matrix and bone grafting. In my point of view, that's, that's at this point the state of the art for treating these defects in the ankle. So to, to wrap this up, when I get you right, as long as you have a defect which is less than three millimeters deep, you would perform microfracturing only. And if you have a defect which is deeper than three millimeters, which is then the indication to fill it up with bone graft, then you would always use a matrix. Is that correct? Well, if you're in the bone graft, for sure, you need a matrix. And in the other defects, I think we should look at the diameter of the lesions. And if it's greater than one square centimeters, I, I would use a, a matrix uh, as well. Come back, probably I'll come back for a second for a microfracture. Microfracture, I rarely use now in the ankle because if I debride the defect correctly and take away sclerotic bone, it's already bleeding. So there's no more microfracture needed. Uh, so the, the pure chondral defects with an intact subchondral bone are quite rare. And that's only in, really indications for microfracturing. Yes, this is, we, we see this in acute trauma. We see lesions, the purely cartilage lesions uh, with intact bone. But in the chronic situations, uh, we have the very same experience. We always have a bone issue as well, which uh, requires treatment. Yeah. Maybe one more question regarding the microfracturing. I think for the knee as well as for the ankle, micro nanofracturing have been out there and I think more and more authors are favoring nanofracturing or nanodrilling, whatever you do, over microfracturing and the and then just the size of the ale that you just slam to the bone. Do you still do regular microfracturing or have you switched to any sort of nanofracturing or whatever you want to call it? In the knee, if possible, I, I would use uh, drilling or uh, nanofracturing to have the bones, to have the holes smaller and probably prevent hypertrophic bone growth that we've seen in the past uh, when doing, doing microfracture. Um, in the ankle, as I already said, that's not really a matter of questions or, or not really a, a problem. As you've said, intact bone is quite rare, most mostly in, in traumatic cases with, with sheared cartilage defects. A nanofracture is difficult because the angle is difficult to get it in and the bone is quite hard in the ankle. So it's not easy to perform. I tried several times and if, if it's an anterior defect, it's possible. But if you go more posterior, it's not possible to do a nanofracture. The same applies for the drilling. If it's an anterior defect, you can do a drilling. But it's more in posterior, you can't. You have a high risk of breaking up the, the drill and 
and end up somewhere with your drill. So I mean, it's like what you say, man. We have we don't have comparative or very few comparative studies, basically. And in the end, it's it's hard to tell which uh, procedure is the best. But it becomes even more difficult or more unclear if we look at the aftercare. And I think in your study. All patients were basically treated with six weeks of partial weight bearing. And this is exactly the protocol we use as well. To my knowledge, there's some studies out there which suggest that immediate full weight bearing is possible and is not harmful. At least it's not harmful. Whether it leads to better results, I think is unclear. What's your opinion on this? I still stick to the six weeks and in my standard care, uh, four weeks, to about 15 to 20 kilos and two weeks of half weight, half uh, body weight if they're doing well. Actually, I don't think that it's a problem to put full weight. I don't think it's a problem. If the weight is going actual on the surface and there's a stable joint, but I don't believe it's a good thing if you do on the weight bearing I version inversion since our defects are usually at the edge of the talus and the shear forces I don't think they're good for the patients and you know in standard care it's hard to know before if your patients will really understand that you shouldn't do that when you allow them weight bearing and if the physiotherapists will really understand not to do some kind of proprioceptive training on unstable grounds when you allow full weight bearing from the beginning. So actually in my practice, the standard care is partial weight bearing. You're on the safe side. If you have the feeling it's a small defect, it's a patient that understands what we're talking about and what's important, probably you can go a little faster. But I think you made a very important point uh, earlier, which I would like to pick up again. From our experience, we, we more and more use additional procedures as well. As you said, osteotomies of the calcaneus or stabilization of the ligament in order to protect the cartilage uh, regeneration. Whatever we use, I think it's important to look for instabilities, to look for malalignment, and really to be aware that this procedure needs protection. Would you agree to that? Yeah, completely agree. And I would say in, in, uh, in one third of my patients, they have an additional procedure, one third to one half to half of the patients. They would most, most likely, most in most instances, a ligament uh, stabilizing procedure because most of the lesions are somehow based on instability. Hind foot correction, in some cases, there I'm a little more reluctant because it's more invasive, but uh, if necessary, I would do so especially if it's a revision case. Definitely. Christoph, we so far have covered a wide range and a lot of important aspects regarding osteochondral defects. And I think we have to come to an end with the webinar in order to continue with our other sessions. But at the silver lining, what do you think are the upcoming trends, new developments that are going to be exciting for, for us for the next five to 10 years? Well, <laughs> if it's the right word, um, well, we, of course, we want to improve somehow the biology. And um, from a procedure side, men's college is a hot topic. It's now discussed up and down in the conferences. At this point, I'm not doing it because 
I, I think it works. I think it will not work better than what we have, but I, I think it works. But we don't know about the drawbacks. Probably there might some be some had some drawbacks. So I actually at this point I don't do it. But it's going to be interesting uh, to see what will be the outcome of, of mid-scandal procedures. Of course, additional biologies, biologic procedures such as uh, the addition of PRP or bone marrow aspirate is interesting. Uh, actually. In most instances, I, I use bone marrow aspirate and, and put it on my matrix to improve biology. I don't know if it's really uh, improving the outcome at the end. I, with the scores that we have, probably we'll never know. Probably with better imaging, such as MRI, better MRI imaging, we could find out in the future, but we don't know at this point. But it gives me a good feeling to put some BMAC on, to be honest. About PRP, I use it in the after-treatment period. I start from the third week with uh, three injections and weekly sessions. To to I, I offer this to the patients. I, I I'm sure it doesn't harm. That's my experience for for for, few, for some years now. If it really improves the result, we don't know yet. There are some studies out with small small cohorts that at least so show that it's not worse. That probably is even better than if you don't use it. A good part of it is that I see the patients that I can discuss, that I have the opportunity to speak to the patient, discuss with him there after treatment, discuss with him what I did, how was the lesion, what is special in his case, discuss sports. So I think um, the, the contact to the patient is also uh, giving me a, some bonus and it will, will help, I think, to improve the results of the patient. Yeah, I think the biology issue will be very interesting in the future, and I hope we soon make some steps forward regarding biology. So, Christoph, it's been exciting talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for spending time with us and discussing your outstanding publication and the general aspects of cartilage treatments. And uh, thanks, everybody, for zooming in, and enjoy the rest of the webinar. Thank you. Bye-bye.